In a world of complex and overwhelming challenges, the Inspirational Insights Podcast provides a shift in perspective. Dive into the minds of brilliant thinkers, creatives, and edge-riding leaders who have adapted their thinking and leadership practices to match today's perplexing challenges. Your host, Donna Jones, leads captivating conversations with trailblazers from diverse fields who have transcended tough and complex conditions to contribute to a healthier world. Can we collectively break old habits to reinvent the human-work-earth relationship and support the vitality and diversity of all life? Harnessing agility, embracing possibilities. Welcome to the journey. For a change of pace and a topic, two guests today, Doug Kirkpatrick and Rod Collins, both friends and colleagues, talking about many things, not the least of which is self-management, uh, collective intelligence, what it means for you, for companies, and for society as a whole, and the under underlying shifts that affect your life, your work, and your choices. My name is Donna Jones, and you're listening to the Inspirational Insights podcast. I'm going to ask each of my guests to give a little bit of an introduction into themselves, their work, their background, and then we'll roll. Doug, can we start with you? Sure. Dr. Patrick, I was fortunate a few decades ago to join a young entrepreneur named Chris Rufer, who started a company called Morningstar. When we started that company, we started it as a self-managed enterprise. Over the years, I absorbed the principles and practices and lessons learned of organizing a fast-growing, large-scale enterprise based on management principles that seemed quite radical at the time, not so radical today. The idea of self-management, people not managing others, but managing themselves. I took that knowledge and experience and turned it into a career of speaking, writing, and consulting. I was fortunate to be able to visit pretty much every part of the world over the last 15 years, taking this message everywhere I could. I authored a couple of books along the way, written some articles, and speak, write, and consult today about the topic of organizational self-management at scale. That's me. Thanks, Doug. Rod Collins, your turn. Sure. I spent over three decades with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program in the United States. It's a business alliance of 39 separate companies to deliver a seamless health insurance product to federal employees in the United States. And for the first two decades, I had a rather routine, regular job, spent most of it in the auditing area. But about 20 years in, I was asked to lead the operation. And the operations needed a turnaround. We really had sustained two decades of low growth and low performance. As I was looking at that task, I asked, I realized we lead this organization like it's a hierarchy because that's the only form of management that you're really taught in business school. And I recognize we're leading a network, not a hierarchy. And so we have to learn how to do that. And started with a blank sheet of paper. We invented some meeting techniques, one of which I now call the Collective Intelligence Workshop. And we did some other things where we began to bring in practices or event practices that you would gear for a peer-to-peer -peer network rather than a top hierarchy. It was rather successful, and I spent my last five years as the chief executive 
business. In the course of doing this, I discovered that the most untapped resource in the typical organization is the collective intelligence of its own people. But it's something that's very natural in organizations like Duckworth for. If you can leverage collective intelligence, you can work both smarter and faster than you can in top-down hierarchies. Uh, I think I'll leave it there, and I, I think more will be developed as we have our conversation. Two things are interesting about what both of you have just said. One is the idea of self-managed organizations, and the other is the idea of collective intelligence. Doug, let's start with some myth-busting, and then I'd like to see you two just ping-pong back and forth around those two concepts and how they relate to one another, how they interact with one another in an organizational context. When we talk about self-managed organizations, fresh perception, people that know nothing about this at all, would think self-managed organizations, sounds selfish, word association would come in and not necessarily land at collective intelligence, nor would it land in any kind of sense of structure. It would end up with this idea of an unstructured, chaotic situation or organism in an organizational sense. Speak to that, would you please, Doug? So when people hear the term self-management, if they think it's about themselves and the idea is that I can pretty much do whatever I want to do, that I don't have to listen to other people, I don't have to relate to the needs of other people in the organization or externally to the organization, then I've embraced a complete and total misconception of what self-management is. Self-management is simply management by other means. Management has been around forever. It's how we build stuff. It's how we create stuff together. Anyone associated with another person is in an organization. And organizations can range from two people to hundreds of thousands of people. Management is not rocket science. Management is simply planning, organizing, controlling, selecting, and coordinating. There are other permutations of that definition, but those are the core functions of management. Planning is strategy. Organizing is leadership. Controlling is budgeting. Selecting is hiring and firing. Coordinating is teamwork. Everyone performs these functions all the time in their own personal lives. Everyone makes gigantic life-altering decisions on their own, uh, self-managing without a boss. We decide who to date, who to marry, what to do for a living, whether to go to college, whether to buy a car or a house or have kids or whatever it happens to be. Management is something we all do every day. The idea is that everyone's a manager already in their own personal lives. It begs the question, if we're all managers already, if we know what to do at work and how to do it, why do we need managers of other people at work? When we uh, look at the history of management, it started with a train wreck in Massachusetts. Two trains collided and killed some people. And so the Western Railway in 1841 hired George Whistler to uh, figure it out. He was a civil engineer. And he borrowed ideas from the Prussian military and brought them over to the U.S. And they involved uh, lines of authority, chains of command, departments, silos, specific communication up and down a chain of authority, all the artifacts 
of traditional hierarchical management. That was the network that they developed at the time. Rod alluded to a network. Well, that was the network. It was a human network. We're going to move information up and down the ladder and communicate it broadly. Technology at the time was Morse code, so I don't blame them for creating this system, but that's how the modern economy, the industrial economy grew. The sad thing is that we're still using these systems today, but technology has far outpaced our need for traditional human hierarchical management because information moves at light speed. We're still using those systems today, and we call it management, management of other people. The radical departure of self-management is we say that everyone's already a manager. If they know what to do and how to do it, they don't need managers telling them what to do. So we equip people with resources, principles, practices, and the ability to build relationships, and we create dynamic hierarchies, dynamic networks of self-managed professionals who relate to each other by commitments. Commitments are very serious. There's promises of bold declarations of intent with structure and a life cycle and language. Commitments are the structure of a self-managed enterprise. And that's what I work with today with clients and interested people that listen to talks, etc. want to know how to do that. It's all about relating as a network, as Rod mentioned, not as a traditional hierarchical ladder of command and control authority. Don, if I could build on Doug's comments, I do think that there are two fundamental models for organizational architectures, the hierarchy and the network. The fundamental architecture has to answer two questions, and these two different models answer these two questions very, very differently. The first question is, who decides? The second question is, how does power work? In a hierarchy, the elite decide. An elite few make all the decisions. Compliance is what is expected of the, the rest of the people in the organization. In a network, everyone decides. Everyone on the team. There is no one person who can veto another person. How does power work? This is really where these two models are even more different. In the typical top-down hierarchy, power is a function of force. Power is coercive power. People have the legitimate authority to have people do what they otherwise would not choose to or risk losing your job. In a network, power is not a function of force. It's a function of energy. And it's a higher form of power. It's not a priori. It's something that emerges from the interactions of the people. And it tends to produce both better decisions and better results. Now, I know this concept of team decision-making is hard for people to grasp. I was listening to a podcast just two days ago where the person being interviewed was describing how Valve worked. Valve is a self-managed company in the Northwest or in the gaming industry. The host just couldn't grasp and more or less said, well, this is idealistic and wishful thinking. And the person being interviewed said, no, I'm explaining to you an actual company, how it actually works. And so 
I'm sure most of our listeners just cannot imagine how could something work if you don't have any bosses? They have a preconceived notion that bosses make things work better. I want to give our audience a very pragmatic, practical example that everyone can relate to. And I'll start with a question. Why don't we have airplane crashes anymore? When I first started traveling as an employee, we had three to four airplane crashes on average per year in the United States. I was very cognitive every time I sat in the seat on an airplane. I hope I'm not on one of the three to four this year. I don't have that concern anymore because it is very, very, very rare for a commercial airliner to crash. And the reason doesn't have to do with better machines. The reason has to do with a crash that happened with United Airlines back in 1978 when the captain was in charge and they ran into a problem with landing gear and they weren't sure whether it was locked. And the captain got totally myopically focused on it. The other crew members were trying to draw his attention to the fact that they needed to focus on their fuel level. He ignored them, stayed focused on the problem that he thought was important and the plane ran out of fuel and crashed. And when the NTSB team working on it is listening to the cockpit voice recorder, they're recognizing all the information for a safe landing is there, but it can't get through because the cockpit management model is top-down hierarchical. The captain's in charge. He is not to be challenged. The two co-pilots in there with him you can see that their mental mindset is, I cannot challenge this captain or risk losing my job. Well, the NTSB made a recommendation that United implemented and all other airlines did, that they were going to turn the cockpit from a hierarchy to a network. And they changed the modus operandi. You won't be fired for speaking up. You'll be fired for not speaking up. I occasionally watch air disasters on Smithsonian. I watched this situation where a cockpit crew ran into a problem where when they moved the, the flaps, there were two flaps on each wing. One went up and one went down. They're supposed to go in the same directions. The mechanics had put them back together in the wrong way when they worked on it. There were four people in the cockpit, three pilots and somebody in a jump seat, right? They had never encountered this problem before. And Within a matter of a few hair-raising minutes, these people were able to solve the problem. The first person who spoke up was the person in the jump seat. They immediately went into this team mode. You can watch them going back and forth. They had to first discover they had this flap issue. Then they had to discover how they could manipulate the engine power. And, and they did, in fact, safely land the plane. Had they not engaged in self-management, that plane would have crashed, no doubt about it, if they had to rely on one person directing all the activity. Why is it that self-management is so much more effective than top-down hierarchical management? And the reason is top-down hierarchical management does not correct for two blind spots that inherent in human nature. One is unconscious biases. When you amplify the intelligence of the elite few and shut up the voices of everyone else, those biases get amplified. That captain and that flight that crashed myopically focused on landing gear. 
that was his unconscious bias and he couldn't get off it. And the second thing is hierarchies are very slow to uncover unknown unknowns. In a rapidly changing world, that is oftentimes what makes or breaks a company. If everyone is allowed to speak up, if everyone participates in decision-making, you can rapidly uncover the unknown unknown, which is exactly what happened in the second example of the Cochrane Group crew, where they were working together. The unknown unknown is we have the, a situation where that one flax go pointed up and one flax pointed down on the wing. When they were able to uncover that, then that enabled them to come up with appropriate corrective action in rapid time to save the plane. Without working as a team, they probably would never have discovered that unknown unknown. In a rapidly changing world, you cannot afford to amplify unconscious biases, and you better have the capacity to uncover unknown unknowns. Collective intelligence does a better job of that than elite intelligence. Thanks for our great examples. Hierarchies are natural in nature, but they work differently. When we put them in organizations, we treat them as verticals, the command and control structure, as opposed to something that's more organic, more interactive, where everybody understands their role and they work within that in a very cooperative and I'm going to use the word collaborative, but that's probably not the best word, but collective intelligence type of way. Self-managed organizations, I think, have more structure than hierarchical organizations do, but it's a different kind of structure because it's a responsibility and accountability to each other instead of to a process or something that is outside of ourselves. Can we explore that? Rod gave a really good description of the benefits of collective intelligence. I think he used the term no bosses or the idea of not having a boss in a non-hierarchical network situation. In an organization like Morningstar, a self-managed organization, there actually is a very important boss. It's just that the boss is not human. The boss is the purpose of the enterprise. It's the mission of the enterprise. That's the boss. And everyone should pay attention to that boss. And that should guide all actions and all decision-making. We had a delegation from Denmark visit Morningstar in operations a few years ago. One of the visitors asked an operator, machine operator, who's your boss? And the operator said, the factory is my boss. Or, or a visitor from Denmark said he got a chill up and down his spine when he heard that because he realized that this wasn't an organization operating with human bosses. This is an organization operating with a, a much more important boss being the purpose of the enterprise itself. And that's what people pay attention to. Um, that guides all decision-making. It guides all actions. Uh, in the networked uh, self-managed enterprise, the glue that holds that network together is composed of commitments. In a self-managed enterprise, and preferably everywhere, commitments are sacrosanct. They are declarations of intent. They are bold promises of intent to deliver value from one person to another or from one person to several others. 
Uh, Fernando Flores is the great theorist of commitment-making and commitment-keeping, spent time in, in prison in Chile during a bloody coup in the early 70s, came out and wrote a book called Understanding Computers and Cognition, which many people consider the handbook of artificial intelligence. But he also studied the linguistics of commitment-keeping and commitment-making. He said that commitments have a structure. And they began with a request or an offer from a requester to or initiator to a performer. And then the individuals negotiate conditions of satisfaction, what they call in the agile software world, the definition of done. There's really no such thing as accountability without an underlying commit commitments can be long-term, continuous, ongoing, and uh, perpetual, such as subscribing to the principles of an organization upon joining, or they can be short-term, ad hoc, and discontinuous, the kind of commitment you make passing their colleague in the hallway and offering to deliver a report the next day. Morningstar, uh, people memorialize their long-term continuous commitments with an instrument called a colleague letter of understanding. Generally speaking, people connect to seven to 12 other colleagues with that instrument. And uh, it's a very important instrument. It's, it's a contract between colleagues. And at one point, uh, Morningstar digitized these colleague letters of understanding, took them to a computer lab, the University of California, and uh, they projected these relationships in, in three-dimensional space. The organization chart of Morningstar looks like a giant spider web. There's no top or bottom, up or down, east or west. There are only colleagues who are bound together by long-term commitments. Their alt commitment is to the mission, which is the boss, to which everyone is accountable. Uh, the challenge with many companies is that they're often very sloppy about the way uh, people make and keep commitments. So getting clarity around Commitment-making is a huge untapped opportunity for accountability, transparency, clarity, and high performance in organizations. At some point when a commitment has been made, the performer goes off and delivers on the promise and declares that commitment has been fulfilled. And at that point, the initiator of a commitment gets to inspect the results and see if indeed that commitment met the conditions of satisfaction agreed upon. And if yes, the uh, parties close the loop on the commitment and move on to the next commitment. Decision rights are a very important concept in these calling letters of understanding because the question for any given decision is, who's the best person or persons to make a decision and what's the best method for making a decision? Decision rights are completely negotiable. Generally speaking, the people that are most qualified to make certain decisions are the ones that end up owning the decisions with the consent of their fellow colleagues. And those decision rights can be negotiated and renegotiated at any time. They can involve every level of decisions from large-scale control decisions to minute uh, trivial decisions and everything in between. It's important to know who owns the decisions and how those decisions get made because Clarity around decision rights is a huge untapped opportunity for mo most organizations, most individuals, for
for clarity, accountability, and transparency, and ultimately business performance. That's a huge element of organizational self-management, of voluntary negotiation, of ownership, of decision rights. It's a form of ownership. It's like property ownership in a sense. And those decision rights are, are out there and available for uh, ownership by anyone who can demonstrate a case for ownership of a particular right. That's how it works in an organization like Morningstar. I suspect that most of our listeners are working in more traditional type organizations and are probably thinking, how can I affect what Doug has just described in my organization? That was the challenge that, that I faced in particular. It begins with leadership and practicing leadership very differently. The leader who finds themselves in a traditional organization who wants to bring this management philosophy in needs to shift their focus from control to understanding. I would suggest that every company that's working despite its hierarchy, there exists within it a network of people who really are making that company work and succeed. These people have incredible political savvy and know how to legitimately break rules and get things done. And if they weren't there, and if everybody followed the rules exactly as designed, the companies will grind to a halt. You mentioned before that there are natural hierarchies. One of the things I like to point out, in every network, there's a hierarchy. And in every hierarchy, there's a network. The hierarchies in networks are not prescribed. They're dynamic, they're emergent, and they're ever-changing, okay? When the group is responsible for this decision-making, it isn't necessarily majority rules. It's not necessarily consensus. It's not necessarily unanimous. It could be any of those things, depending upon how the group decides what should happen. The group also could designate one individual you have such knowledge, you're going to make the decision and we're going to trust you. But the point is that person is not self-appointed or appointed by somebody else. That person is designated by the group and the group can take away that authority if the person doesn't use the authority. The manager's job is not to control. The manager's job is to facilitate the broadest understanding among the broadest group of people. That's what happened in our airplane example. Instead of one person making all the judgments and decisions, they go into team mode. What they are all focused on is we better broaden our understanding of what we're in as fast as we can, or we're not going to get out of it. The boss is not a particular person, but is a mission, okay, that people are connected to. It provides a point of focus, but it's dynamic. I would suggest that every company that's working despite its hierarchy, there exists within it a network of people who really are making that company work and succeed. These people have incredible political savvy and know how to legitimately break rules and get things done. And if they weren't there, and if everybody followed the rules exactly as designed, the companies will grind to a halt. So what does that look like in a traditional organization? I first did this as a department head. When I had department meetings of 15 people, 
one day decided instead of just meeting in the round as 15 people, I split them into three groups of five, asked them to focus on something, and I left the room. Said, I'll be back in 30 minutes. When we came back, we had three different perspectives on how to approach the problem, starting to broaden the understanding. Those different perspectives wound up producing ideas that as people put them together, they began to have the experience, oh, we're coming up with a solution that no one of us could achieve. This is one of the things you begin to see with collective intelligence. When I wound up having larger responsibilities, first over the operations and then finally over the whole business, we developed a particular practice we called the Collective Intelligence Workshop. The, the Collective Intelligence Workshops, we would bring together about 40 or 50 people. These would go for usually about two days to handle very complex, very sophisticated problems. What we were doing is creating a network within that space to bring in the whole idea and of practices of self-management and to expand this understanding. This was a very different type of session because in traditional organizations, you tend to either meet by level or by function. We were a large business. Remember, we were an alliance of 39 separate companies. But those people were from all different dimensions of the business. So we had senior vice presidents in the same meeting as we did with the person we hired out of college two weeks ago. And everybody had the same book. To expand understanding, the first several hours of the meeting, there were presentations of the problem. We would have small group discussions about what was important to the people about the problem. And as the presentations were given, and as the reports were given from the group, the people were restricted to asking clarifying questions only. They couldn't express an agreement, disagreement. They couldn't express a, a different idea. This is what tends to happen in a typical meeting. And it becomes a battle for dominance rather than an opportunity for understanding. If you can only ask clarifying questions, You've got to understand what others are saying, either this table report or the presenter, regardless of your agreement or disagreement. Once we had gotten that broad-based understanding through various exercises, now the discussions that we had were much richer. And we also would engage in process to come up with the best ideas, because if you have 40 or 50 people in the room, you're going to have about six, seven, eight tables. You're going to generate possibly 40 or 50 ideas on how to solve these. We use stick-on dots that we would give to people. Right. We consolidate the flip charts into a mutually exclusive list. So 40 items might go down to about 20 items. And it was amazing. 95% of the time, there's always a top four items. And what that looks like, if you had votes, it's like 30, 29, 28, 27, 15. It's a break point. And when you would turn to the room and say, if we focus on these four items, will they solve the problem? People would say, yes. And oftentimes, as you look at the four items, two of those items appear to be mutually exclusive. But the other two items that were part of the set were the glue that made the whole holistic thing work in such a way that everybody could sign on. And so we use the network in the room, we leverage their collective intelligence and could rapidly come up with solutions that in our traditional hierarchical meeting mode would take months 
to get to, whereas we could get to it literally in a couple of hours. One of the advantages collective intelligence gives you, one of the advantage networks give you is speed. You can solve problems faster because you're able to correct for unconscious biases and you do it in ways that were, you're discovering unknown unknowns. This was surprising to me. I discovered collective intelligence by designing this meeting, which originally I did as a no debate meeting so that we could expand understanding. But once we recognized this collective intelligence, we turned it into a powerful tool that we applied to our biggest problems. And I just want to close out this comment by pointing out the four conditions that are necessary for collective intelligence that baked into self-management. People in self-managed structures don't have to think about these elements because they're baked in. But people in hierarchies do. Here are the four elements. One, you need diversity of opinion. No censorship. We would not censor anybody's ideas in these sessions. Two, everyone must be free to express their opinion without fear of retaliation. We oftentimes anonymize ideas by their being reported from tables rather than from individuals. So you separate the idea from right and let the ideas take on a life of their own. You need a lot of local knowledge, which is in these sessions, we had people who were close to processes as well as people who were looking at the macro view. You need an aggregation mechanism. In our case, it was the dots. In the case that Doug has described, decision rights. Decision rights are a form of aggregation mechanism when the people are deciding how they will aggregate the information they have in the best way to come up with the collective intelligence roof. Right now in our larger society, we are seeing really autocratic behavior. There is no place for censorship. Oftentimes in these collective intelligence workshops, we would work on something for two hours. We appear to have the solution. Remember, we've got 40, 50 people in the room. And I would ask this question. Is there any single person in this room who thinks what we're going to do fatally flawed? I would say, I'm not asking if you got your preference. You may not have gotten your preference, but you can live with it and it's going to work. But if you're sitting there and you know this is going to fail, but I'm afraid to speak up, I would tell them you have a responsibility to speak up because you, the one person, may see something nobody else does. And there were times where I would watch what one person transform an entire room, pivot to an entirely different place. You've got to honor different opinions because sometimes people see what they don't. Most times when people express their, their differences, the rest of the people go, no, that's not what we mean. What we mean is this. And then it's like, oh, okay. But it was very important to me <laughs> that you honor those individual voices and that everybody leaves the room convinced what we've agreed to will work. And if anybody felt it was fatally flawed, you must. And so this is why you don't focus on control. You focus on understanding. And it's really important to listen to dissonant voices. I think this happens more naturally in self-management, but it's a particular discipline that we are losing today in all forms of our social organization. Agreed. One of the things that I heard and you say, Rod, was diversity of views. Do you both think that 
that diversity is better, diverse points of view, diverse perspectives are better expressed in a self-managed organizational context or in a context where there's trust through the commitment structure, the decision rights structure. Let me ask it another way. What is the qualifying characteristic of the environment that people work in that allows people, no matter what, to be able to have voice and not have it crushed inside an organization? Well, I can tackle that. Morningstar is a principle-centered organization. And so the principles are there is no use of force allowed, and people are expected to keep the commitments they make to each other. These are the two most important principles of human interaction. They are to human beings what gravity is to physics. Imagine a world where everyone abandoned the use of force. We wouldn't need armies or navies or police or locks on our doors. And of course, that's not realistic, but that's not really the point. The point is, the closer we get to that ideal state, the better off we are as human beings, the more space we open up for the collective intelligence that Rod talked about for happiness, harmony, prosperity, teamwork, and all the good stuff of life. Imagine a world where everyone did what they said they were going to do 100% of the time. What an amazing world that would be to live. And of course, we know that's not reality either, but that's, again, the point. The point is the closer we get, the better off we are. When you structurally remove force, that means no one has the ability to issue commands to other people with the expectation that their commands will be obeyed. It disappears. It is structurally non-existent. That means that everyone is structurally safe to express themselves, to openly negotiate for ownership of decision rights, and to do all the things necessary to achieve collective intelligence, better decision-making, better performance, and just a better workplace. You can be more or less effective in a self-managed enterprise, just like you can be more or less effective in a traditional hierarchy. But embracing of collective intelligence escalates and elevates business performance and effectiveness of self-management greatly because you're tapping into the wisdom of everyone who could potentially contribute to the quality of, of a decision or an action. The people are free to speak out. Now, if they choose not to speak out, that's their choice uh, because everyone has free will. Uh, people are free to speak up or not as they, as they choose, but there are no structural barriers to doing so. And that is incredibly liberating. People that gravitate toward a self-managed environment love that aspect of it because they're totally free, 100% free to express themselves without fear of censorship or any inherent barriers at all to making their voices heard. Boy, if I could build on... Doug's comments with a, an example of what this looks like when you're trying to do it in a traditional organization. This idea of giving up force and leading by force. I recall a time out of these collective intelligence workshops. I'm the highest title in the room. I'm operating in a facilitative role and I've accepted the discipline. I'm the only person who can't express an opinion because if I were to do that, people cannot might sit there and say, well, he's the boss. That's what we're going to do. And even if he asked, I what, what he said, well, one day we were working on, on, on something and 
we'd gone through the clarifying questions. We built the understanding. And now we're into the general discussion of where we're going to go. And I recall thinking, this is a disaster, what the group wants to do. This is the wrong thing. And this is where the internal battle goes on, where I feel this sense of responsibility. I, I, I'm supposed to be the, the, the chief executive of this group, and, and, and they're going down the wrong path. And then I think to myself, do I step in and, and, and say, no, we're not going to do that? And I thought, if I do that, it won't take more than 30 minutes for it to literally get around the country. Rob Collins believes in collaboration as long as you agree. And I said, <laughs> yeah. I've got to trust process, okay, and go where it goes. And so we continued the discussion. And as the discussion continued, it pivoted. It wound up in an incredible place with an exquisite solution that we were all excited about. And what I learned is by not stopping the process, okay, and, on, and, and accepting this role of facilitator of understanding, had I interceded, I would have screwed everything up. We would have put in a lesser solution. I would have killed this process that really had become a tremendous tool. And thereafter that, whenever I had the sense, oh, this group is down the wrong path, I thought, oh, I'm going to learn something today. I'm curious to see where we'll land. And I was never disappointed. It was experiences like that caused me personally to realize why would I ever substitute my own point of view, my own opinion for the collective intelligence of a group. I'd have to be nuts to do that. And I would be killing my own personal success. It took time to see that. But this is why I say the most important transformation, if you want to bring these inside a hierarchy, is you must shift your focus as a manager from control to understand. Okay? You can't invest in outcome. You have to trust the group. And you've got to honor all the voices. No coercion. I think that means leadership takes on a completely different level of awareness. It, it goes from mindlessly moving through the world, through the processes that you have at hand, to being much more conscious and aware of what am I doing in this moment? Do I step in? Do I step back? It's a higher level of, I would say, a higher level of self-leadership, but it's also a, a more acute awareness of what's the context I'm in in your observations of how this works out in group dynamics, in team dynamics, in organizational dynamics, what do you see as being the biggest struggles when the management tier is shifting over into a more uh, self-reliant, more self-responsible, distributed intelligence working together collectively? What have you observed have been the greatest struggles and also the, the epiphanies that go with it? I'll chime in. I think one of the biggest struggles is it's very difficult for traditional managers who've been steeped in hierarchy and command and control to give up power. That's one of the main challenges. Ian Robertson wrote a book called The Winner Effect, How Power Affects Your Brain, and observed that when people exercise command authority, they get a shot of dopamine in the brain, causing some to become literally addicted to power. So if an organization decides to transition to a more self-managed collective intelligence-based model, 
you can't really expect traditional managers to embrace with uh, passion necessarily because they're being asked to give up power. Extremely difficult. Dr. Keltner, a psychologist at Berkeley, his graduate students have studied the dynamics of power. They found uh, people in positions of power who find their etiquette, their manners, their treatment of other people actually degrades a bit. Say acquire power and exercise power, even table manners and things like that. It's just sort of an elevated sense of self relative to other people, a power position. So expecting people to happily give up power an organizational transition is a big ask. Everyone's going to do willingly. Organizations and, and people with a vision of desired future state have to be aware of that and to be prepared to deal with it. Boy, this is right at crooks of things. I think when people first hear about self-management, self-governance, they focus on that first question, who decides? And they just, this is chaos, a free-for-all. You got to have a decision maker. I mean, somebody's got to have the final word. But the real transformation is in how power works. And I admittedly will tell you, I am primarily motivated by power. But I'm motivated by, I want to be part of the most powerful structures, organizations that I can. And I'm going to experience that when I am connected to synergistic power. Synergistic power is far, far more powerful than coercive power. With coercive power, you're narrowing the focus. You're expanding control. People who are focused on power are focused on their organization within its four walls. Their world exists within a building. When you're invested in synergistic power, you are expanding yourself into the world. That's when you shift from focus on, I work for a boss, to I work for a mission. If I work for a boss, I'm working for somebody in an office inside four walls. If I'm working for a mission, I'm trying to change the world. If you're really motivated by power, forget the four walls. You want to have an influence on the world. And your best way to do that is to leverage the collective intelligence of large numbers of people to help them to develop their own synergistic sense of power, to create breakthroughs and thinking that no one individual can come up with, that transforms marketplaces, that really improves the lives of people, that type of experience, okay, will give you one hell of a dopamine experience. But you know what? Nobody will notice you're there because they'll all have a sense of what we did. If you're really interested in power, you want to be part of that because that's a lot bigger and a lot more successful than focusing on who I can control. You don't give up power, you give up coercion. You wind up getting into a aspect of power that is far, far greater. That's why I think in the long run, in our larger society, we are facing a digital choice between autocracy and self-governance. And the Chinese Communist Party and the World Economic Forum want to build an autocratic world where an elite few are going to determine everything for everybody on the planet. 
I think that self-governance is going to win. I think people like Satoshi Nakamoto, who's built a wonderful self-governance structure of Bitcoin, the blockchain foundation, will win in the end. And here's why. Autocracies never innovate. They kill innovation because censorship is the bomb that kills innovation. And innovation always wins in the end. It may not win the, the first couple of battles, but it always wins the war. And the reason we're going to have this choice and it's why I think hierarchies are going to disappear, is the problem that bureaucracy solved is going away. I was doing some research recently, and, and it stunned me. Homo sapiens is 200,000 years old. For our first 190,000 years, the typical form of social organization was self-management, self-governance, because people lived in groups of 100 people or less, and if somebody tried to take charge, they'd kill them. People had to learn how to get along. They engaged in team decision-making and they engaged in synergistic power. 10,000 years ago at the agrarian age and, the, and, and what led to eventually the Roman Empire, we had the problem of we have to coordinate the, beha the behavior of people whom we can't see. Bureaucracy was a solution for that. And when the industrial age comes along, it took what the Romans had invented and applied it to corporations. Where we are today is with digital technology, we are going to find ourselves in a position now where we do have everybody and everything in our sight. So bureaucracy will go away, but the hierarchical structures will transform from trust authority to obey authority and become autocracies. We can see this movement happening today. We're also seeing the growth of self-organized structures, again, in the form of Bitcoin, in the form of blockchain, and I also think in the form of what people are calling alternative media. These are self-governed structures, okay, that are breaking through. This is happening on many dimensions within organizations, but at the end of the day, it is all about power, but it's a very different type of power. It's synergistic power. It's connective power. It's power that we share by leveraging our collective intelligence. Thanks, Rod. Doug? I can't improve on what I just heard from Rod. Rod is a <laughs> futurist. He paints a perfect picture of what's going on in the world today and where he thinks it's going to end up. always enjoy listening to Rod on these topics. Can we just roll together what you both talked about into some observations around what does this mean for Someone who's, who's been in an autocratic structure and they're looking at options. What are my alternatives? If you've got the vision and you see, I want to do a self-managed organization and I want to move toward that, or maybe it's a DAO, a distributed autonomous organization, depending on the structural preferences. What would you say to somebody who is really struggling with these autocratic mode kinds of organizations and who would prefer freedom? And the other side of that is, what about the people who actually prefer being told what to do and prefer to conform and want to stay in that? What thoughts do you each have on that? Donna, what I would say to the person who feels constrained and wants more freedom, every one of us has free will. We know this because the three of us chose to be here today and we could have chosen to be someplace else. We all have free will. I believe we all swim in a vast, infinite ocean of infinite choices. So embrace your free will and seek opportunities within your existing organization 
to flex your leadership muscles, your creative muscles, your relationship building muscles, find opportunities, seek opportunities, find projects to work on, get to know mentors and coaches and people who can help advance your interest in the organization. Do whatever you can to expand your universe within that organization. And if at the end of that exploration, you still don't feel you have enough freedom and autonomy and opportunity to achieve your definition of happiness, then you're free to find another organization. Take advantage of the limitless, infinite sea of opportunities in which you swim and maximize and optimize those. To the people who simply want to be told what to do and show up for work, find a situation where that exists and enjoy it to the fullest. Because most organizations are command and control. Most organizations still rely on traditional bureaucracy and hierarchy to propel their mission forward. And so there's no shortage of opportunities for those kinds of organizations. Find an, an opportunity there and to make the most of it. And if you change your mind eventually and you want more freedom, there should be more organizations out there to choose from. And I think I'd like to direct my closing comments to leaders who are listening, who say, who find themselves in whatever situation they're in, I would like to lead in this different way. I would ask them to remember the lessons learned by the pilots. A, ca a captain is not a dictator. A captain is a facilitator. Focus on expanding the understanding of your team and not your personal control. Listen to all the voices, especially the ones you think are crazy, because oftentimes they're the ones who are innovative. Challenge their thinking, okay, because it probably needs to be challenged, but don't discourage the thinking. Don't invest in particular outcomes. Because oftentimes the outcome you need is for something you're not aware of in the beginning, which is why you want to be listening to voices and come up with ways to leverage their collective intelligence. I think if you do that, and it's going to be a little scary, and you're going to have to change your mindset on what it means to be a leader. But if you can do that, I think you, what you will discover is you'll be handed more and more responsibility because nothing succeeds like success. I recognized early on, as I looked around my particular work situation, I noticed they rewarded a lot of bad behavior if they got results. I thought they're probably going to reward good behavior if you get results. And it turned out they did. As I got more and more responsibilities, I was known as the weird one. But the weird one who delivers results, all right? People are going to say that about you, okay, because you are going to be leading differently. It can be done but it really does require a shift in your mindset from dictator to facilitator. It's not about being in charge. It's about being connected. And just once again, learn the lesson that the pilots learned. That's why we don't have crashes anymore. Beautiful. Thank you both very much. If I may add my own observations, what we've been talking about is really the art of listening and the art of asking questions and the art of getting oneself out of the way so you can actually hear. I think it's a much higher standard of leadership in the sense that you're relying more on your own intrinsic sense of security, vision, and capacity to work with other people in a respectful way. I want to thank you both very much for being on the program. <laughs> thank you Appreciate so it. much. Thanks. Appreciate it very much.
In episode 30 of this podcast, I did an interview with Gary Klein. Actually, it was republished from my previous podcast, where we talk about insights and seeing things differently. There are people in every organization that see things differently, perhaps outliers. However, unless their voice is brought in, they won't have the opportunity to help make the shift toward a different way of seeing, a different way of working, that is much more optimal for not only the people inside the organization, but also for the customers and clients and the wider society and communities that the company is situated in and also serves. There is a big shift underway that is very observable from the outside by people like myself, who spend quite a bit of time watching and how things are moving, in which direction things are moving. The resistance that exists for preserving the status quo, for trying to stay within that comfort zone, is really a high-risk position to take. And it also denies so much talent and so much creativity in every single person, but particularly those who are resisting the most because um, it is a way of denying oneself. I hope out of this conversation you've gotten some ideas, some insights that um, will allow you to Rethink about what you're doing in your own business, what you're doing in your work, maybe what you're doing in your life as well, because uh, this is a time when we are really being called upon to cross that threshold, accept the challenge of the journey, and to really apply all of who we are to the problems that we face in the world today. My name is Donna Jones. Kindly provide a review or share this episode with somebody who you think will benefit from it. And uh, also follow me on LinkedIn and or Instagram. Thanks for joining me.